Welcome to Leadership is in Session, powered by Athena Communications. This special series features some of Milwaukee's most distinguished leaders. They'll share how they overcame challenges, developed their skills, and achieved success, so you can gain insight and inspiration. And now, Leadership is in Session. Well, welcome, everybody. Today, it is my distinct honor and privilege to have with us the one and only Judge Derek Mosley for a conversation about community and connections with your friendly neighborhood judge. Judge Mosley, welcome. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we are so glad to have you because I'd love to talk to you about your incredible history and your story, starting out at Marquette University Law School. After you graduated, you were an assistant district attorney for Milwaukee County, our homes, both of our homes, and you represented the state in more than 1,000 criminal prosecutions. That's an extraordinary number. Then from here, you were appointed municipal court judge in Milwaukee and then served for 10 years as Chief Judge of the Milwaukee Municipal Court. Just this year, though, you left the bench and you are now director of the Marquette Law School's Lubar Center for Public Policy Research and Civic Education. What inspired your career choice in law? Oh, that's a great question. And I tell this to students all the time when they come in for orientation at the law school. So this is the honest truth. I I grew up on the south side of Chicago. And on the south side of Chicago, I had zero interaction with any lawyers, and I had zero interaction with any lawyers who were of color. And so the first lawyer I ever saw of color was actually a character played by Blair Underwood. So Blair Underwood played a character by the name of Jonathan Rollins on the show L.A. Law, which was one of my favorite shows. And he was the first black lawyer I had ever seen. And I said to myself, I want to be him. I want to do that. Now, granted, it was for all the wrong reasons, right? He drove a BMW. He had a house on the ocean. And so, but that's what launched me into this career of law. If it wasn't for seeing him as a character, I probably would have never even thought that was an option for me because if you don't see it, you can't believe it. And so that's the only reason I'm a lawyer. And so I have to reach out to Blair because I just want him to know the effect that he had on my life, probably not even knowing it. Maybe we can facilitate that. (laughs) Maybe he's our next guest. Maybe we co-host that. But that's pretty remarkable. And I have actually heard you you say that. And it's interesting that you mentioned that you had never seen a black lawyer, correct? Correct. And so what does it mean to you now? Because you are a mentor to so many, not even just in the law profession, but other students, other young men and women coming up in Milwaukee. What does that mean to you? What is that like? Yeah. So to be honest, that one experience from seeing LA Law to where I am right now made me believe that if you could see it, you can achieve it because you could believe it, right? And so when I was on the bench, I'd ask every juvenile who came into my court, what do you want to do for a living? And for most of them, that's the first time anyone ever asked them that question. And so most of my responses are pretty obvious, as you imagine. Oh, I want to play for the Packers. I want to play for the Bucks. And so I took that experience that I had that I saw this character. It made me want to become a lawyer. And I 
started to mentor youth to show them something else. So there's a program that I brought back to life. It had been extinct for over 20 years. It's called the METAL program. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but METAL is an acronym for Medicine, Engineering, Dentistry, Architecture, and Law. And the purpose of the program is I take middle school students. It's a one-week program. It's only in the morning. And so Monday is the M And so we go to the Medical College of Wisconsin. And so I take these youth, we go to the Medical College, they meet med students who are of color, people who look just like them. They get to talk to them, ask them questions. They get issued white coats to make them feel like they're actually med students. And in the Medical College, they have a floor that's, it looks like a hospital floor. And so instead of real patients, they have these dummies that actually talk and their eyes blink and their mouths move. And there's someone like kind of like the Wizard of Oz, there's someone in the back who controls all the voices and things. And so these kids do their rounds. They get to go to the patient, ask them what's wrong with them, and they come together and come up with conclusions. So they get to see that aspect. Tuesday is engineering. So we go to MSOE. When we go to MSOE, they meet engineering students who are of color, who look just like them. And they get a car and they learn how to code. And then we have tracks laid out and you have to see who can get their car to finish the track first by typing in code. And so they learn that while they're there. Wednesday's the D, it's the dental school. We go to Marquette Dental School, they get their white coats and they learn how to fill a tooth. And they meet dental students who look just like them. And then Thursday is, it's architecture. We go to MATC for the architecture piece, but I go there for two reasons, the drafting and the architecture piece, but also for the trades because they meet plumbers and carpenters and healthcare workers. So they get to see that aspect as well. And then Friday we kick, we end at the law school where they meet law students of color. They get a case they have to break down and they argue in front of a judge. And I would have a judge come in or I would sit up there and hear their cases. And so- What's interesting about the program is before we start the program, I have everybody write down what you want to do for a living. They have no idea. And I say, what do you want to do for a living? Write it down, put it in this envelope. They write it down, put it in an envelope, seal it, say, put your name on it. We do the whole program for the week. On Friday, I said, what do you want to do for a living? And they say, oh my gosh, I want to be a dentist. I think I might want to be an engineer. And I say, open up your envelope. And they open it up and it says, basketball player, right? And so now you've seen something different in that one week period of time. So that's the whole thing that's guided my whole career is getting kids, getting people in front of kids to you know, light that light that makes them think, I could be whatever I want to be. How transformational do you think that is for those students who, again, probably didn't envision themselves doing anything of the sort, perhaps like you when you were a young man? Yeah. No. So I've learned a number of things along the way. This is how transforming it is. I learned something from David Gruber. Everybody knows David Gruber. And what I learned about from David Gruber is if you put anything on a t-shirt and give it to people, they will wear it, right? And so one of the things that part of this, the medal program is they get t-shirts from every place. So they get a Medical College of Wisconsin, Marquette Dental, Marquette Law, MATC, MSOE. And they wear these t-shirts around town. So not only am I influencing that kid, but another kid said, hey, where'd you get that medical college shirt from? Oh, I did this program. And so it starts to snowball. And so that's it's transforming not just one kid, but a block and then hopefully a neighborhood. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. As you said, if you can see it, you can believe it, Absolutely. Right? And speaking of that, you work at a pretty tremendous place, Marquette University Law School, your beloved alma mater. Yes. Talk to us about your work at the Lubar Center. I often have heard the leaders at Marquette University Law School talk about the fact 
that it's a crossroads of conversation. It's a place for people to convene and talk about issues of the day. How is the Lubar Center doing that? Yeah, so Lubar Center is actually, first, first and foremost, we're a venue inside of Marquette Law School, inside Eckstein Hall. And we seat about 200 people. And we are a convener. We're, I don't take sides, but we convene people into our building to have conversations. We were started by Shel, Sheldon Lubar. Shell and Marianne Lubar gave us a very generous endowment to start this up because my conversation with Shell went like this. Shell was upset about the fact of how our country is going. We are in these little camps and these factions, and we don't talk to each other. We don't know each other. And we have no civil discourse. So he wanted to start a place where we could have conversations, get in the same room and talk. And so my mission at the Lubar Center is to continue that goal. And we do it a number of ways. So we do a thing called on the issues. So there'll be a specific issue that's a pressing issue in the country. And we'll have people come in and talk about it. So we did one earlier in this year on reckless driving. And so we brought in all the powers that be, law enforcement, education, citizens, into the Lubar Center to have that conversation. What can we do to combat this reckless driving problem that we're having? So that's one thing we do, these on the issues programs. Another thing we do is what we call get to know. And the get to know program is basically, I'm, I pull people from across the community that have an effect on your life every day that you probably don't know very well. And I have them come in and this is more, on the issues is more like meet the press. You know, it's more hard hitting. This is like, I always say, this is like Jimmy Kimmel. You know, we sit at a, we sit on a couch and we just talk and I get to know you. And so there are people who are doing tremendous things here in the city that affect us every day that we don't know about. So that's the get to know series. And then the one that's been extremely popular as well is what we call our heritage dinners. And so each month, almost every month is a heritage month, right? February is Black History. You know, May is AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander, and then September is Latino Heritage Month. So I'll just give you an example. So for African American Heritage Month in February, we had five African American chefs who came in and they prepare a dish that is introduced to the American palate by enslaved Africans. And so our model for these dinners, are it's called meet someone, learn something, try everything. So when you come into the event, you walk in, we sit you at a table with people you do not know. And then we give you a half hour just to say who you are, a little icebreaker, who you are. If you want to exchange cards, exchange cards. And then we bring out the chefs and the chefs come out and they say, here's what you're going to eat. You have five courses. I'm the chef doing course number one. You eat this because blah, blah, blah. You hear the culture and the history. So we did African-American History Month. We've done Asian-American and Pacific Islander. And they told you the culture. So not only are you meeting someone, you're learning a culture and you're trying the food. Right. And then the last thing we always say is try everything. We want you to try everything. And they've been really popular because we don't do that anymore. We don't live in the same neighborhoods. Our kids don't go to the same schools. And so now we're putting people into a room together to do something that we haven't done in a while and talk. And let me tell you, I didn't know what was going to happen with this because I have a slight food background. And so I, I didn't know how this was going to work. But we had been two and a half years not getting together and the response from the community has been amazing. Everybody wants, I mean, we have waiting lists. They were selling the tickets to the events secondhand on social media saying that, hey, I've got an extra ticket. I'll sell it to you for more than what we were wow. <laughs> charging for. So that's what it's all about. The Loop Bar Center, our goal is to bring people together of different cultures, religions, political ideologies, and just have a talk. 
civil discourse. You could disagree with me, right? But just don't be disagreeable, right? We just want to have conversations. So you mentioned two things I wanted to talk to you about. Oh, good. One of which is if for people who don't follow you on social media, first of all, you should. And you lifted two things that you are very passionate about. One is food, right? Yes. And you do a very extensive series about black history. Absolutely. Talk to us about both of those and how they're connected. Why does food represent community to you? Right. So let's start with that question first, right? So we're all humans, right? And we all have to eat. So no matter if you're black, white, Asian, Latino, no matter what your background is, if you don't eat, you are going to die, right? And so you can be as opposite as you think we are, but we have to eat to survive. So why not let's get together and eat as humans and just talk and get to know each other. When you do that, you realize you have more in common than that separates you. And that's been going on from day one, right? From day one, people getting together, breaking bread and talking to each other. Plus, when you eat, you're kind of like disarmed, right? You're relaxed, you're having a meal and things tend to flow a little bit better. So that has been a big push for me is to get people to do that over food. So I love food. And my goal with the food piece is trying to introduce people to places that they had never been before. We in in Milwaukee specifically, we're pretty, you know, creatures of habit, right? And so you'll talk to someone and they'll say, oh, it's Friday. So I have to have a fish fry at Kegel's Inn. I always go to Kegel's for my fish fry. And I'm like, well, that's great. Kegel's is amazing. But have you ever thought about this place for a fish fry? And so I'm trying to introduce places to people they might not be aware of. And that's cross-culturally because there's a number of restaurants owned by people of color that I think the white community hasn't been aware of, just as there are the many white restaurants that people of color aren't aware of. So my goal is to try to be that mesh between them all so that we can all get together, break bread, and learn more about each other. So talk to us about your series on Black history. And on a more serious note, you are known nationally and internationally for your work. You speak about unconscious bias. Yes. Why is that? Yeah. So let's start with the black history piece. This all started when I was in probably middle school, I believe it was, a kid who went to school with said something that probably didn't mean to be mean about it. But he said, you know, what have blacks ever done for this country in history? Because You know, he said that from a place of I opened up the history book and there's no black faces, right? So when I was going to school, Martin Luther King was about the extent of black people you learned about and you learned a little bit about slavery and then black history. So if you knew nothing about black people, you would think our entire diaspora was slavery and Martin Luther King, right? And so that had an effect on me. And another thing that I have to say and it still hurts me to this day, and I'm just going to tell you, is that my mom grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And my mom told me about the Tulsa race riots when I was in middle school. Most people are learning about the Tulsa race riots like in the last two or three years. Right. My mom told me this when I was in middle school. And I went to my teacher and I said, how come we don't learn about the Tulsa race riots? And my teacher said, that never happened. I don't know anything about that. I didn't learn that never happened. And so I came back to my mom and I was like, my teacher said that never happened. And I'm still hurt about that because it, my mom felt like she, I didn't believe what she had to say. And I was going to take this teacher's word for it. And it was that moment right there that I had to learn as much as I could about history. Then I had kids. I had two girls. And then I had to make sure they knew as much as they 
could about history because our history is rich. Our history is beautiful. It's a history of struggle. It's a history of determination. It's a history of success against unbelievable odds that you would think it's an American story, right? And you would think you would want to tell these stories as an inspiration to generations that, hey, they overcame Think of all the people who were chained on boats and ripped away from their families and went through Jim Crow and the civil rights movement just so I could sit here today and talk to you on this podcast, right? And so I want everybody to know that story. So I thought, what's the best way to do this? And we're in the social media era. So let's, what if I take one day in February each month and just tell one story, right? And just see what happens. So the first year I did this was almost like 12 years ago. I put, Every day, a different story. And, you know, we get like 10 likes, 50 likes, 100 likes. And now I do stories. I did a story before anybody knew who Henrietta Lacks was or Betty Roskin, who was the oldest park ranger in the history uh, of the National Park Service. That one got over 200, 300,000 likes. And so people wanted to hear the stories. And social media gave me that avenue to go bigger than just Milwaukee, right? I mean, once people follow you on social media, it goes everywhere and people share and then their friends see it. And so that's what got me on this journey to just get as much information as possible. And when I started 12 years ago, I didn't realize how important it would be today because today we live in an environment where people are trying to shut down these stories. They don't want to tell these stories because they don't want people to have their feelings hurt. And it's not a matter of people having their feelings hurt. It's telling a story. And that story tells of everything that makes us Americans, right? And so I'm really, you know, I'm really glad that I did that 12 years ago because I didn't think we would be here today where we're having conversations about, well, we're not going to teach black history in school or black history isn't a major. It's just going to be a minor in college and things of that nature. So that's what got me on that journey and excited about it. And I, what I see every year is I see people doing what I'm doing for their culture. So I have friends who are now, who are Asian, who are doing, hey, Asian Heritage Month, we're doing a story. And I have friends who are Latino. Every month, I'm going to do a story. And so we're writing our stories, right? They, they might not be written in the history books or they were ignored in the history books, but we are writing our stories and telling our truths. Why is that important for our younger generation, people like your daughters mm-hmm. and all of the young people you mentor? Why is it important for them to see you leading that? Yeah. I I think it's important to see me specifically leading it. Is that the question? Yeah. I think it's important for my daughters to see it because they know that how important it is to me that it's it's important to them because now they're doing it. They do the same thing. So my daughters will find something and they'll say, dad, do you know about so-and-so? And the classic example is Selma Burks. Many people might not know, have any idea who Selma Burks is. Selma Burks is an artist, sculpture, African-American woman. She was asked to, she competed in this competition to do a bust of FDR and she won. And that bust that she created of FDR is what you see today on the dime. It, that, that picture is her picture. Unfortunately, it's a coin. And so when it's minted, that picture becomes the property of the mint. And so on every dime, you'll see underneath Roosevelt's, right underneath his neck, you'll see JS. And that's the initials for John Sinek because he was the mint. He was the in charge of the mint, the engraver. So the engraver got credit for engraving that to that symbol. But my daughter told me that story. She was like, Dad, have you heard of Selma Burks? I'm like, no. And she told me the story. So I see them seeing what I do, right? Because kids do 
what they see, right? And they saw me do it, and now they did it. And that's how I learned that story. So, yeah, I think it has a huge effect. And like we talked about, if you see it, you can believe it kind of thing. And, oh, I just think about all the stories that we don't tell in our history books that would have such an effect on I mean, you've probably seen hidden figures or, right? I mean, just to think that these women actually came up with the algorithm to send us to the moon and back. And we hid that forever, right? This is That, that movie probably came out in what, the last 30 years, maybe. And that was hidden. And those women made those algorithms for it to happen. Just think about that. If you're a young black girl and you knew this story and you saw these black women who came up with that, you're like, you know what? I might want to be a mathematician, like the metal program. I might want to do this. But we hide these stories, and it's doing us a disservice as a country. What is inspiring to you about the youth of Milwaukee right now? Yeah, they are. So I'll use my daughters as a great example. They are ready. That's the way to put it. They are ready. Well, so, so they grew up in this society where everything that they want, they can get right now, right? So my daughter's like, I want to watch this cartoon. Well, it's on demand. So I can watch it on demand, right? Or I want to listen to this song. Well, I have Spotify. I can pull it up right now, right? Now, that's something, I mean, I had to sit at the radio and wait and hope my song came on so I could hit record and play, <laughs> right? And so they don't understand what's taking so long. So when you talk about social justice, when you talk about civil rights, when you talk about treating people fairly, they don't understand what's taking so long. Why am I, this is my daughter said this, why am I fighting the fight that grandma and grandpa fought? Why am I fighting this fight? That should be done already. And so what inspires me about them is that they are ready now and they aren't going to sit back and wait for things to happen. They're going to make them happen. You can see it now. Younger people are running for office. Younger people are getting more involved in the election process. And it's important because they are ready to see change now. And that's what, what inspires me to see that. If you could give advice to not just young people, but maybe other people on the sidelines who are looking to get involved, mm -hmm. what is that? Yeah, we need you. Right. So if you're on the sidelines and you're looking to get involved, there's plenty to do. And it's as simple as just mentoring. Mentor Milwaukee is a great program. If you want to make a difference, come out and help. We have a number of kids who need a mentor, somebody who they can look up to, ask questions to. And so I, I think about this. So my daughter just went through the college process. That is not an easy process. I have a law degree and that is a process that takes time and you have to do your research. And I think about the kids who don't have a Judge Mosley as a dad, right? Who don't have somebody who's able to navigate that system. So we would need you for that piece, right? Because I know a lot of kids who are smart enough to get into college who could do great things, but navigating that application process is not easy. And so if it's just mentoring a kid to get them through that process, if it's just taking a kid to the ballpark, if it's taking them to the museum. The one thing I learned when I was on the bench in Milwaukee is that kids who grow up in certain neighborhoods in the city know very little about this city. And so take them to the lakefront, take them to Miller Park, take them to the domes, take them to the museum, take them to the Urban Ecology Center, take them to all these places they may not have any interaction with. And so getting involved is easy. I'll use this quote my mom told me, and I had it on my bench and I have it in my office at Marquette. To the world, we're just one person. Right. But to one person, we can be the world. And if you think like that, it makes it a lot easier for us to solve our problems. I mean, we have a lot of things that are attacking us as a group of people. But what's the quote? If you take 
If you're more focused on we than I, you can change illness into wellness, right? Think about that. Think about that, right? If you think about we over I, you can change illness into wellness. And that's what it's all about. I love that you're leaving us on a high note, but I did want to ask one more question. Yeah. What's on your reading list right now? We're we're entering the end of summer. I know I love to read during the summer, and I imagine you may be trying to do a little of relaxation and catching up. What's on your nightstand? All right. So I have two. So I just finished The Bill of Obligations. It was written by David Haas. And here's what I love about this book. We as Americans always talk about the Bill of Rights, right? I have the right to bear arms. I have the right to freedom of religion, all that stuff. David Haas has 10 Bill of Obligations as an American citizen, right? So you have the right to become – it's your obligation to become knowledgeable about the people who are running for office. It's your obligation to go vote for people. It's your obligation to be involved in your community. So the Bill of Obligations, it's a great read by David Haas. And the second one that I absolutely love is by Clint Smith, and it's called How the Word is Passed. And he compares America, the United States of America, and Germany. And he compares them in the sense of how they dealt with the darkest times in their history. So slavery and the Holocaust. And it is mind-blowing because he talks about you can't walk five feet in Berlin and not see a plaque that has the name of a Jewish family that was taken out of their homes and sent to a concentration camp. It's You can't walk 30 feet in Berlin and not see that. They embrace that. They want you to understand that we know this happened. We will never happen again. There are no statues to Hitler. There's no statues to any of the SS. Nothing. You can't even own a swastika flag, right? And the uh, what was it? The bunker that they caught, they found Hitler in is a parking lot, right? There's no, they just, they got rid of it. And, and then you come to America and he talks about how we built Confederate statues of people who were pro-slavery and anti-civil rights. And we hold weddings at plantations. I mean, you would never say, hey, I'm going to get married at this concentration camp. We're going to take pictures in the camp and we want you to come to our wedding. No one would ever say that or do that. Yet we hold weddings Every year, hundreds of weddings in plantations all around the South, where families were ripped from each other, where people were beaten and hanged and killed. And we have weddings there. And it's a great book called How the Word is Passed, how two different countries deal with their past. And one has said, we don't ever want to forget it, and we want to make sure that we don't glorify anything that happened. And another one we went through the stage where we were, they called the Civil War the War of Northern Aggression. Like, what? You know, it was just, and so, it, it, yes, how the word is passed, Clint Smith. Those are my two right now on the bookshelf. Sounds like we all have some reading to do. And I just want to thank you and appreciate you for coming and sharing and inspiring our listeners, talking about community and conversation and the importance of really listening to each other. So, Judge Mosley, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Leadership is in Session, powered by Athena Communications. Be sure to catch all eight enlightening episodes. And don't forget to connect to On the Edge of Equity with Tammy Belton Davis, available wherever you get your podcasts.